Welcome to another episode of the Faith Work Rest podcast. Our mission is to help people discern their vocations and reimagine their occupation for the good of their neighbor and the glory of God. We're part of the Surge Network. It's a network of local churches united to put Jesus on display in their community. You can learn more at surgenetwork.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Faith Work and Rest podcast. I'm Lauren Kutzko. I'm here with Jim Mullins and Kimberly Deckel. Uh, we've got a great interview for you today, but first we've got someone in the community whose work we really want to celebrate. Kimberly. Yeah, so I wanted to recognize actually like a ministry that's been around for a long time. I always kind of use this like rule of thumb that it's a little bit younger than I am and I just had a birthday. So I want to say that Neighborhood Ministries is about I think 37 or maybe 38 years old and they've been um, in Phoenix near 19th Avenue in Van Buren for a long time and have just done some really beautiful work in that community and especially um, around our brothers and sisters who are immigrants here in Phoenix. And they um, have such a a wide reach, I think, throughout Phoenix and just throughout like Arizona and even around like policy and things like that. Um, And just do it from such a place of love and such a place of really looking at the scriptures and what the scriptures tell us about the immigrant and about the foreigner. Um, and we even, as a church, last night had an opportunity to participate in a program with them called Neighbor's Table that also just really um, looks at that and just helps people who love Jesus have an understanding and hear the story of our brothers and sisters who are immigrants. And, and neighborhood for my family has become, in a lot of ways, kind of a second home too, and just really lovely people there. And, and Kit, um, who started Neighborhood Forever Ago, has just really listened to God's call on her life and just been really, really faithful to that. So I just want to just thank Kit and everybody who works with her for just the really, really good work that they've done in Phoenix. It was interesting. I once was a part of a group where someone asked the question of, who are the Mother Teresa-like figures (laughs) of Phoenix that people don't know about but they should know yeah. about and multiple people said Kit Danley yeah. as an example. So so that's the person in Phoenix, but today in our interview we're going to talk about someone who is a leader and really shaping the life of Pittsburgh and that is Lisa Slayton. She's the CEO of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. She is super sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a lot of insights into uh, leadership, into how to love your city well. A lot of what we hear in this interview is there's just a lot of tangible nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. yeah. But before we jump into into that, um, I just wanted to hear from you guys what stood out to you about her interview. What do you what would you say, Lauren? Uh, such a good good interview. And it was fun uh, listening to somebody from Pittsburgh. I grew up outside of Cleveland, so everything she was saying about the Rust Belt and the uh, 20th century was really. Um, I felt like I could kind of picture some of the streets that um, she was referencing. So that was a lot of fun. But, um, you know, she didn't spend a lot of time on this, as you guys will hear, but she made this um, this comment, or I think she was quoting somebody, where she said, if the gospel isn't working in all zip codes, it's not working in any zip codes. Hmm. Um, and she was talking about how some 30% of the neighborhoods in Pittsburgh haven't experienced an economic renaissance um, since the decline of the Rust Belt. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, because that's not, doesn't tend to be the way that I think about things. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I, I tend to think sort of like, here's where... God's put me and so focus my energy here. And so it's it's just interesting to kind of think about, yeah, but, you know, if it's if it's not everywhere, you know, then it's nowhere. Yeah. It's just, it's just a, I mean, it's obviously kind of a hyperbolic statement, but it, it, it uh, caught my attention. So. Mm. Yeah, 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 that's good. How about yeah. you, Kimberly? So I think for me, it's kind of um, like overall, just really loved the interview with Lisa. I think she has such a good um, kind of work, faith 
theology mm-hmm. that I think will just be in general just a really it's a really good addition to our podcast and just gives a really nice um I don't know just deep kind of assessment of of what that looks like and and I think that so much of what she talks about like yes it's it's Pittsburgh but also really can apply to so many parts of the country so yeah. I think just in general I appreciated like so much of what she had to say it was kind of hard for me to pinpoint one thing but sure. just really it's really deep and, yeah. and rich and significant yeah 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 at the very end of the podcast she said something that was so profound. I actually had a few other questions, but I yeah. said, we have to shut the podcast yeah. down now <laughs> so that it's the last thing people mm-hmm. hear and that's what they reflect mm-hmm. on. And she basically was giving this, this. Um, I asked her the question about if she could shape a one-day retreat mm-hmm. for all the leaders in Pittsburgh or something like that. What would you have them do? And she said, answer these two questions. Essentially, where should I be putting my attention Mm -hmm. and what should my intention be? Or in other words, how, who should I be with and how should I be with them? And I think if you can answer those two questions for leadership, for life, you are well on your way Mm -hmm. and attention and intention. And I just took those two words and I put them in my pocket and I'm like, I need to think more about this. Mm -hmm. So with that said, let's listen in on our interview with Lisa Slayton, the CEO of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. So I'm here with Lisa Slayton. It's been a interview that I've wanted to do for a long time. The CEO of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. We are really grateful, Lisa, that you have jumped on the podcast and are lending your wisdom to us today. My pleasure to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump into the questions about leadership and your work and those sorts of things, I wanted to do just a quick rapid fire round where I throw you these these simple questions that help people get to know you. And uh, you just give us the, the one sentence answer, just a little snapshot of who you are. Sure. So first of all, yeah. So first of all, what has been your most influential book, the, the book that has shaped you the most? Well, I thought about this when I got your questions, and uh, I, it's very hard for me to answer. I'm a book junkie. So I would say there are a couple uh, that I would mention that shaped my my Christian walk. Uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer was very influential mm. for me, and also a book by a man named Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace. Those were probably two of the most significant things I read early in my adult Christian walk, which began in my 30s. From a leadership perspective, I'd have to say that the book I reference most often is Jim Collins' research on From Good to Great. That's great. Those are great books. Uh, what about a relationship that has been most influential outside of your family? It's a tough one too, but uh, I would point to my dear brother and friend, uh, Rick Wellock. Rick and I have worked together for over 15 years now. He is a guru in the vocational discipleship space, and I've probably learned more from him over the last 15 years than, than almost any other person that I've spent a significant amount of time with. He's been a very good friend, um, a mentor, a partner. I consider him my mentor, but he works for me, so we have a very mutually submitted relationship relationship in many ways, and I value it greatly. That's fantastic. And what about a place, a physical location that has shaped who you are? Uh, That one is easy. Um, I have been married to Roger for um, almost 38 years, and with Roger came a little slice of heaven, uh, shalom we call it, on the main coast, um, where we go every summer for an extended period of time. 
Uh, it's about an hour or so north of Portland, right on the coast. And um, it is it is a place that has shaped me over many, many years. It's been, it, this property has been in my husband's family for f- almost six generations. And, and we all gather there as a family on a regular basis. So it's a very, it's a high sense of community and, and belonging uh, for us. And we go back there all the time. That's great. That sounds like a fantastic place. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, what does rest look like for you? I mean, I imagine that's a part of it, but your more regular routines and rhythms of rest. Well, this is um, this is a constant struggle for me. I am uh, I'm an eight on the enneagram. I move fast. I don't slow down often. Um, rest often gets forced on me rather than me choosing it. Although I'm trying to shift that in uh, as I get a little bit older, um, and so I I intentionally carve out time. I I try my best to observe Sabbath on Sunday. I don't work uh, full time in a church, so I have the freedom to truly observe the Sabbath from Saturday night until Sunday night. And you know, I take rest from the digital world periodically. I love to just take a long walk with my dogs. Uh, I have two Labradors who love nothing more than to be uh, with me somewhere, whether it's lying on the couch where I rest or walking in the woods, uh, which can be very restful as well. So those are those are some of the things I do. But it rest is rest is not easy for me. I uh, I struggle with it for sure. Yeah, I hear you. Well, speaking of rest uh, and the work that can often push out rest, what do you do? What's your work? Um, well, I do a lot of things. Uh, you know, my my title is that I'm the CEO of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. So, from a job description perspective, I lead a, a small nonprofit organization that's been based in Pittsburgh. Uh, we were founded uh, a little over 40 years ago with a calling or a mission to to raise up Christ-centered leaders uh, for the redemption of our region in all aspects. That that language is in our founding documents. So, I do all the things that a, a nonprofit leader does, from you know, raise money to develop opportunities. Opportunities to you know run programs that we run and and you know build a, a healthy staff and work with a board and all of those things. But the work that I do primarily that's the most life giving for me is the work that I actually do in in developing leaders and their teams for the intent of bringing about flourishing in their particular domain or sphere of influence. So a lot of the work from a business perspective might be called you know organizational development consulting or executive development, you know, coaching, that kind of thing. But really what we do, uh, my team and I, um, is we do deep uh, vocational discipleship inside organizations. And sometimes we get to talk about Jesus and sometimes we don't. So uh, that's what that's the work I really love to do. That's great. What, what would you say are the good works that you were made to do? Like your sense of what you were made for and how that overlaps with the work that you currently do? Yeah, I've done a lot of personal work um, over many years to to gain clarity around that. And when I'm when I'm working at my best, um, I'm really shaping shaping something that that allows people to experience some kind of transformation or impact. And and so whether that's cooking a meal for people or shaping a cohort experience, we run six month cohorts um, that draw people into into a way of of examining themselves and thinking about their own sense of calling and purpose. Whether it's as concrete as paint colors on a wall, or you know what is the experience I want people to have in where we have a big event coming up in a couple of weeks, and my role in that is really thinking through and shaping the experience that people are going to have when they step into the room for that afternoon. So that's that's really what I'm called to do, and it shows up in lots of different ways in 
some very concrete and some more conceptual or abstract in how I go about doing my work on a regular basis. Well, it seems like in order to say yes to things like that, over time, you would have had to say no to a lot of things to sustain that sort of vocational faithfulness. What do you think have been some of your most important no's in your in your life? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I've I've gotten better um, at saying no over the last number of years. It's not my strong suit, but one of the things I learned about myself early on is that I have I have a very high value around good detail and follow through on things. It matters a great deal to me that things get done excellently. It, it's all about the shaping experience. However, um, I really am not a very good administrator. And what has happened to me over the years is because people watch me work and say, oh, give that job to Lisa because she'll make sure it gets done and done well. Well, that's true. But there's a deep shadow side to that for me because it's not really, I, I am far better off partnering with someone who is a good uh, good administrative uh, person because they will get it far better than I do. And the no's I've had to say and disappoint people around is, I appreciate that you want me to do that, but I'm going to have to say no. And it's been significant opportunities. Um, the executive pastor of a church. Um, and I just looked at, at my pastor and said, I love you, but that job would kill me. And he thought I was like, but, but, but this is what you love to do. I'm like, no, not so much. Here's what I love to do. So learning and understanding, you know, what matters to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's my responsibility to be the one to do that. And so building a team that, that can make all this happen in a way is, is very important to me, but I can't be the one that does every piece of it. Sure, sure. Well, let me ask about the story of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. Um, I've heard it mentioned a few times, and it's really inspiring. Tell me about that. How did it come about? What's the background of this, uh, this work that's happening in Pittsburgh? Well, um, I, it's a long story, and for the sake of time, I'll try and keep it fairly abbreviated. Um, uh, Pittsburgh as a city has a long uh, and rich tradition, spiritual tradition and spiritual history. There was a, a moment that happened uh, in this history in the mid-1950s when an Episcopal priest uh, came to Pittsburgh in uh, at the end of his career. He had pastored for many years in New York City, and he made a decision to come to Pittsburgh to pastor here. His name was Sam Shoemaker, and he everyone thought he was crazy. Um, if you, I don't know what you know about Pittsburgh or what your listeners may know, but Pittsburgh in the 1950s was a pretty grim place. You know, it was the steel mills and the coal mines and a lot of grit and gray skies and uh, muddy, you know, yucky rivers. It was just not a very pretty place. And people said to Sam, why in the world would you go to Pittsburgh uh, when you've been pastoring in Manhattan to the rich and famous for most of your career? But, and Sam, I don't know that he ever gave them a good answer, but he made the decision to come. Um, Sam is most known for his work uh, in the recovery movement, um, he is, uh, is is often credited with giving Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson the 12 steps that became the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sam fundamentally believed that people would only transform in the context of community. And AA was, is, you know, as we all know, a very robust movement that, that lives that out in its practices and principles on a regular basis to this day. Sam came to Pittsburgh and he started a small group ministry that was called, that is still around 
around. It's changed over time, but it's called the Pittsburgh Experiment. And it was really inviting people who were confused about their faith into a 30-day prayer experiment that would then lead them into community. And most of the people that were coming to him were primarily at that time men, although eventually there were women as well, who were out in the marketplace, out in the workplace, in the factories of, you know, of Pittsburgh, trying to figure out what their Christian faith had to do with this everyday work that they were doing. And uh, this this thing took off and it became known nationally as the Pittsburgh Experiment. And Time Magazine came to Pittsburgh in 1955 and interviewed Tom, Sam and took a picture of him standing up on Mount Washington, looking down to where our three rivers meet. Uh, there's a, a, an intersection of the three rivers. It's very well known in this region called The Point. And, and, and they asked Sam, um, you know, t- tell us about Pittsburgh. And he, the quote that he became very well known for was, one day Pittsburgh will be more famous for God than for steel. But the quote that preceded that mobilized a number of people, including our founder. And what he said was the the untapped or the backlog of conviction and belief in this city is worth more to it than all the coal in the hills and all the steel in the mills. If we could train and mobilize that force, Pittsburgh would become a spiritual pilot plant for hmm. America. And what he was talking about, of course, was the everyday person sitting in the pews of Pittsburgh and saying, how do we mobilize the faithful? How do we mobilize, equip and mobilize those people who are following hard after Jesus, but are not connecting their faith with what they do, you know, most of the week. And that was really became the rallying cry for many, many ministries. Um, out of that, our founder, a man named Reed Carpenter and a number of others began to gather to pray for the city on a monthly basis. And that prayer gathering became an incubator of sorts. It incubated a number of um, nonprofits, including a campus ministry called the CCO and several other things, other prayer groups. And about 15 years later, this group came to Reed. Reed came to Pittsburgh. He was a Young Life guy and he came here to open up Young Life region in, in in our area. But he's an entrepreneur and he was getting a little frustrated with, you know, sort of the the institutional nature of an organization like Young Life. And so this group came to him and said, Reed, we think we need an organization that can act as an umbrella for some of these things that we're incubating. Should we start um, you know, a 501c3 to do that? And that was really what became the, the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. We were incorporated in 1978. And, and for many years under Reed's leadership, we really were a, a kind of social venture incubator, a faith-based social venture incubator. There's 50 some organizations that, that had their start in some connection with the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. And then Reed went on to take that. There were many people that came to Pittsburgh to see what he was doing who cared deeply about their cities. There's always been a strong theology of place embedded in the Leadership Foundation Network. And these folks came to Pittsburgh to see what Reed was up to. And over time, by the late 90s and into the early 2000s, a network was forming. And so Reed went off to lead the network and named a successor, uh, a leadership expert guru named John Stalwart. And John really began to shift the organization away from this social venture model more into the leadership development space. And so that's that's the history. I joined in 2005 to help John launch a leadership cohort experience um, that we continue to run to this day. It's called the Leaders Collaborative. And it was really designed to equip leaders from all aspects of our community, but with a heavy emphasis on the entrepreneur and the business community in a sort of holistic understanding of how their faith would inform their work and their business. So, so yeah, so that's the, that's the, the history. There's tons more I could say, but I'll stop there. No, that's really, that's a rich history. I can't help but think about the real sense of connection to place that you and the founders and, and those connected with 
Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation have had in this venture. I'm curious, when you imagine God looking at Pittsburgh, what do you think makes him smile? What do you think makes him weep? Boy, um, well, I think he'd look at our city now um, and and smile about the movements of faithful men and women doing all kinds of things to to be about the renewal of the city and to bring human flourishing to our city. There are lots of efforts um, that Christians are deeply embedded in in all kinds of ways. We have a vibrant entrepreneurial community, that, and there's been a lot of renewal and and kind of renaissance in Pittsburgh over the last fifteen or twenty years. Once the steel industry began to suffer, it looked like Pittsburgh was going the way of many other Rust Belt cities and just sort of dying, you know, and dying a slow and painful death. But it hasn't been true here. That said, if you were to drive around our city, and the, there's actually research that's been done um, to, to validate this, there is there's about 30% of our neighborhoods that have had absolutely no experience with this renaissance. And they remain uh, disconnected from the opportunities that our city has to offer. They are not flourishing. Many of them uh, have have food insecurity. The businesses have vacated there because they're no longer safe communities. And I think that that you know, as as one of our pastors in one of these communities says, um, the gospel. If the gospel isn't working in every zip code, it's not working in any zip code. Mm. And so, how are we thinking about bringing flourishing back into those communities? And we strongly believe that the local church has a str- uh, has a role to play in that. So, how are we helping? Our our mission has always been not to compete with local churches, but to be in service to them. And so how are we partnering and serving local churches in those communities to bring flourishing back into, into their neighborhoods? And that's, that's one of the things we're, we're paying a lot of attention to as we move into this next season of work and ministry. Yeah. So as you seek the flourishing of Pittsburgh, it seems like you, you're emphasizing leaders and leadership. Um, I think it's pretty intuitive, but why that emphasis? Well, you know, I think that we have to look at people who, you know, to me, one of the primary responsibilities of of the leader is to steward their influence, their power and influence well. One of our core values at Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation is the value of righteousness. And it really comes from our understanding of, I mean, righteousness is talked about extensively, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. But there's one particular verse that has always been very striking to us, and that's Proverbs 11.10, where it says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And the, and, and if you under, if as I have come to understand that verse, it really means the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the greater good. And so, you know, we, we look to leaders not just to be able to do the work that they're called to do and to become, you know, prosperous, not just financially prosperous, but to bring about, you know, flourishing for their organizations and the people that they're able to employ and to bring good products and services to the world, but also to take it one step further and say, how am I willing to disadvantage myself or my organization for the good of the greater community? That's that's work that has to be cultivated in our postmodern culture. That's not a common, uh, it's a little countercultural to think about, you know, what, what am I called to sacrifice for the greater good? And it's more than just writing a check. It's it's, it's got to be thought of in a much more robust, holistic way. And so that's that's why I think working with leaders and helping them to understand down into their hearts and souls, not just in their heads, but in their hearts and souls, that this is this is part of the calling and stewardship of the of the leader. Mm, that's that's really good. I was wondering about leadership. Maybe uh, maybe we can ask a few questions about that. So 
one of the things that comes to mind when I'm looking at your website is there's this video, well done video, and it has this culinary analogy about leadership. So if you were going to describe the essential ingredients um, of leadership, what would you say are some of the main ones that would show up universally? That's a great, it's a great question. I love that video. Um, and, and yeah, I would love for your listeners to go to the website to watch it. It was filmed uh, in a bakery um, here in Pittsburgh called the Oakmont Bakery. And I have often said to the owners who are friends, um, I think uh, the Oakmont Bakery is actually what heaven's going to look mm. like, I'm pretty sure. And, and the imagery we use there is quite intentional. And I'll describe it for you in just a second. But I think that I think there are key ingredients for what I describe as sort of the healthy leader or the effective leader. There are a couple that I would put in the category of virtue, and there are a couple that I would put in the category of character. And maybe those are not good distinctions because they overlap a little bit. But in the in the category of virtue, I think the two primary things, and maybe there's three, are faithfulness. Are you faithful in the small things, not just in the big things? It's easy to be faithful in, in the when you've got a big assignment and the world is watching. But are you faithful in the small things as a leader? Do you, you know, answer the phone when your child calls you? Do you, you know, stop what you're doing and really pay attention when your husband has something to say to you? You know, are those small things, you know, faithfulness? How do you treat the least and the lost, even if you have a position of influence and power, um, I think is really, is really helpful and, and essential for the, for the leader. I would also say, that, that the leaders that I love to work with are the ones who have a deep abiding trust in the Lord. And course, the correspondence with that is that they're obedient, which means that, um, and you asked me this question earlier, they know what they're to say yes to, and they know what they're to say no to. They know how to live within the bounds or the constraints of who God has made them to be. The leaders that we ha- work with who are in some stage of falling apart or disintegration are often ones who have gotten out over their skis and taken on too much. So this idea of faithfulness and obedience and and then stewardship, which we've already talked about of power and influence. If we want to go to character attributes, I think there there are a lot, but I think there are two or maybe three that I would, would mention. The first is deep humility. You know, it's I mean, you've, I'm sure you've had many of your own experiences and, and as would many of your listeners, it's almost a visceral reaction when you're in the presence of a leader who is prideful mm. or who's filled with hubris. And they can be in, in some ways because they've got the power, they have the, the office, if you will, or the, or the role. But the, the leaders who I want to cultivate and work with are the ones who deeply desire deep humility. But that doesn't mean that they're wishy-washy, mm-hmm. right? It means that they're very courageous, that they have a strong sense of will and purpose. They're very clear. But that will and purpose is towards something greater than themselves. It's not in service to themselves. And so I think those are really, really important, you know, attributes to be paying attention to. And I I want to to work with leaders who who understand that their first their the first foremost thing that God calls them to is to love the people that he's put in their path. So how are they loving their people? Whether it's, you know, their COO or it's, you know, the person who's out sweeping the shop floor, how are they loving their people? How are they caring for their people? And I don't mean that in sort of the mushy, you know, give them a hug and send them a Hallmark card. I mean, are they putting policies in place that care for people? Are they considering how this is going to impact whether it's a change in healthcare benefits or how overtime is structured or anything? Are they thinking through how all the infrastructure 
infrastructure, all the systems and processes in their organization are caring for their people. And they all, you know, we all have limits and constraints on what we can do. But over time, small things make a big difference. And so as they're, they have the ability to make policy decisions or organizational decisions, are they doing it in a way that, that is loving towards their people, love in a very concrete, actionable mm. way? Yeah, that's really rich. And uh, I imagine makes a quite the feast of leadership when those things are present. But um, also, we know that there could be certain things in any recipe that can take good ingredients and make it something toxic. So uh, we had this outbreak recently here in Arizona. I think the ground zero of the romaine lettuce problem was in Yuma, Arizona. Yeah, Uh it's our fault. The the salmonella that hit the country. What would you say would be the equivalent? Like what's the salmonella of leadership that can just turn a good leadership feast into something toxic? I mean, I guess it's kind of the opposite of the things that I just described, but probably the biggest one is is what I call willful blindness. Mm-hmm the inability of the leader to be humble enough or willing enough to to be called out on their blind mm. spots. I think a leader who is not yielded to some authority is a problem. To me that that's a recipe for toxicity. Mm. So, you know, I'm I'm I sit under the authority of my board of directors. I don't always like it. I'm not a particularly compliant person, but they they are the stewards of my organization. So I sit under their authority. You know, I think, I think there's tons of evidence for this uh, out, you know, as we look out at, at some of the great leadership failures and moral failings that we've seen, not, you know, not just in the church, but everywhere. It's often because the leader has had very little accountability or has no authority to whom they're responsible. And so I think, you know, and and therefore doesn't get the feedback that they need around the things that are 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 causing them to to stumble or impact people in a negative mm. way. So I would have to say that's the the biggest one. This this willful blindness, and even when someone the corresponding one, of course, is pride, right? So even when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, Jim, I love you, band, but I'm seeing these things that are I want to pay attention to with you," and your reaction is to to shut that down or tune it out or dismiss it, that's a pride that's a prideful behavior, right? So that that's evidence of pride. And so the pride and lack of accountability, those two things together is a, it's just a toxic formula for disaster. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about how people can learn and grow in leadership. Like for example, what would be a list of books that should be on every leader's bookshelf? You've mentioned Jim Collins, but what else should be on there? There's a lot. We have a, a bibliography of books that we give out with our Leaders Collaborative, and and there are a few in there that I would you know have kind of rise to the top of the list. You know, some of them bring more of a theological perspective of work, and some of them are more about actual discipleship. Probably the most impactful book on on me personally and on how we've thought about leader leadership over the last number of years is a little book that came out about two and a half years ago, written by Andy Crouch, called Strong mm, and So Weak. good. And, and I think I, I, you know, I remember talking to Andy, uh, shortly. I, I was privileged enough to get a copy before it went to publication and remember talking to him about it. And I'm saying, I said to him, Andy, I know you've written this book about human flourishing, but I actually think it's one of the best leadership books I've written or I've ever read. And he, he, you know, he kind of said, I, I'm beginning to see that that might be the case. And, and again, you know, if you're familiar with the book, it's a two by two, uh, and Andy loves two by twos. I love two by twos. So we were, you know, 
best buds from the beginning. But but he talks about you know the the combination of of vulnerability um, and authority and the the tension between those two things. Leaders who live in the tension between those two things. Authority is the ability to take meaningful action, and and vulnerability is the willingness to take on meaningful risk. Leaders who live in the tension of those two things are the leaders who produce human flourishing. And the shot, the underneath of that is. Um, that for in many cases, it is the leader's responsibility to take on suffering intentionally for the good of the community that they serve. And so the choice to descend into suffering is, is the, a critical piece of leadership. And I think that um, we've lost sight of that in our, in our culture. Uh, I think we do a lot to stay in the comfort zone and, and avoid suffering mm-hmm. at all costs. But I think Andy's Andy's framework and, and the way he unpacks it demonstrates that actually not just not just not avoiding suffering, but actually walking towards suffering and saying, yes, I will take this on for the good of the community is the call of the leader. So I, I would point you to Andy's book. Uh, you know, there there are many others that have been influential to me. I'm a big fan of Dr. Henry Cloud. And there are a couple books there that, that we reference all the time. Uh, one is uh, called Integrity. It's about 10 or 11 years old now. But he, he, he defines integrity as the courage to meet the demands of reality. And I think, you know, both of those, uh, both of those books together, they're almost kind of like a one two punch of the heart of, of just what it takes to be a very effective leader. I could go on and on, but I'll stop with those two because I think those are those are the ones I'd say, you know, go grab them if you don't have them in, yeah, on your bookshelf. Yeah, those are great recommendations. What about some overlooked places that people can learn leadership? Books are mm. a great place to start, but where else? I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work of Henry mm, Nowen. Yeah. And I'd probably add, uh, now that I've mentioned him, I'd add one more little book to the leadership list. And that's a little book Henry wrote uh, called In the Name of Jesus, which is a wonderful uh, way of thinking about leadership that supports much of what Andy wrote and, and what Dr. Cloud wrote about about what it takes to, to produce human flourishing. Um, but I do think that you see leadership effectiveness in people who are in, uh, and that's not even the right word. I don't even like that the way it sounded when it came out of my mouth. You see leadership happening in a very healthy way in the very ordinary activities of life. Many people know about Henry now and that he left uh, a very, you know, he was on sort of a trajectory of career greatness in the academy. And he left to go live among some of the most physically and mentally, dis- most physically and mentally disabled people. And that's where he spent many, many years. And I think we see evidence that um, that leadership is is happening in with people who we would consider to be in the margins or in vulnerable places. You know how they influence one another and care for one another. Children watching how children play. Uh, I think if we just pay, stop and pay attention to some very small and ordinary interactions, um, sometimes the most influential person in an organization is not the person who sits in the corner office, but it's someone who has a very you know we would call it mundane um, role in the organization, but because of who they are and how they show up faithfully, they're actually influencing and leading the organization in some very powerful ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's brilliant. I think that's really important. And actually, I would say experientially, that has been the experience of my life. My, my daughter, she's mm. on the autism spectrum. And I was thinking about this yeah. the other day. If there's one person that shapes the cadence and the rhythms of my day, my thoughts, my who has shaped the trajectory of my life, it would be her. 
And so in that way, in a sense, she really is a leader in my life. And um, even in the ways in which her presence has actually called out things in me and in my wife that otherwise would probably lay dormant. She's given us an opportunity to to see differently and love well and um, and to learn to communicate in ways we never would otherwise. And so I, I really like that. I think that's a, that's a good insight that you have there. So let me ask you this. If, if every leader in Pittsburgh was going to be able to take a one-day retreat and spend mm. some time reflecting, journaling, doing whatever – and you had the opportunity to shape and guide that retreat, what are some things you'd have them do? Um, I'd have them turn their phones off. Let's just start with the obvious um, or not even take their phones with them, uh, leave them at home and just kind of shut down the digital bombardment that we have. You know, there's one, and, and that might be an obvious one. I think I think you need to go to a place or do an activity that's life-giving. And so I absolutely believe in the disciplines of solitude and silence. Um, I will tell you, by the way, that I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus never journaled because journaling drives me crazy. And I, I think, okay, if I saw Jesus journaling, maybe I'd feel like I had to do it. But other than a little writing in the sand, I don't ever see, saw that's that he great. journaled. So. All the non-journalers out there, I just let you off the hook. Um, But I think it's, you know, um, I mean, for me, I do better when I'm a little bit active. So retreat for me is not just, you know, sitting on a bench somewhere. I want to be out and take the dogs for a walk. Or, you know, if we're out on the boat when we're up in Maine and just being out on the water is is very restorative to me. Um, the one question, and we talk about this all the time in our work at PLF that that I think that that I think is very important. The the primary disciplines of executive capability are paying attention and being intentional. And if you look at, you know, that's how, if you look at high performance, even in athletes, you can talk about coaching, you can talk about training, you can get, look at all the stuff that they do. But at the end of the day, if you really look at how they're going about what they're doing, they're paying attention to, to what they're supposed to be doing. And they're being very intentional about, about what they do and, and don't do. And I think that we would do well to really focus on what, God, what are you asking me to pay attention to? And you know what is my intent? What is the intent that you have for me in this particular moment or season? You know, to, what am I paying? What am I called to pay attention to? And, and how, how can I be intentional in how I take steps towards the future, whatever that may be? May, to make that a little more concrete, I can simplify it even further. And it sounds something like this, God, who would you have me be with? And how would you have me be with them? Instead of, you know, I think we all have to do the things at the macro level, you know, planning as an organizational leader, you know, we're going to do strategic planning and all this good stuff. I think that's great. But at the end of the day, my steps are ordered by who God would have me be with and how he would have me be with them. And I can't do that well, unless I'm paying attention to the circumstances, the environment, who this person is, I have to know them. 
So I have to spend time getting to know them a little bit. And then how would I be with them? That requires me to know myself so that I can bring the best of myself to them. So it, it's it's deep discipleship work. And I think it requires a degree of self-reflection that is not common. I think that the single bit biggest missing thing that leaders need to do, part of the reason they're, they are willfully blind is because they have no ability to self-reflect. And so, you know, a retreat day spent around really thinking about where am I, where am I tripping myself up? Where am I getting in trouble? Who, who am I, who am I with and how am I with them? Where's that working and where's that not working? Who should I get feedback from? And, and how do I build that group of trusted people around me who can, can speak into my life in a way that holds me accountable and loves me at the same time? Accountability without love is not going to go anywhere. It's just punishment. So I think that's the, the nature of reflection. I mean, I, you know, I could recommend books. I love to have music. You know, for some people, it's being out in nature. For some people, it's a contemplative experience. But I think those are the organizing questions. You know, where am I paying attention and how can I be intentional? And correspondingly, Lord, who would you have me be with and how yeah. would you have me be with? Well, them? I think that's a great place to land. I'm imagining somebody who's in their car right now or on a jog. And if we end now, they're going to have a chance to reflect on those two things of attention and intention. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and land the interview now. I really appreciate you taking the time, Lisa. I appreciate your wisdom. I regard you as one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of the faith and work movement. So uh, I, I sincerely appreciate your time. Well, Jim, it's been a pleasure. And um, thank you so much for inviting me. And I love what you guys are doing out in Arizona. And I've been following your work for years. And I say, praise the Lord and and keep it up because we need more and more uh, folks who are up to what you all are up to as well. So keep, keep the surge going. <laughs> well, thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Before we sign off, we wanted to let you know that we would really appreciate any feedback you have for us. In particular, it would really help us out if you left a comment and gave a rating on iTunes. It will help us get the word out. A five-star rating would be awesome, but we appreciate honesty. Also, if you are seeking some clarity about your work and calling, we would love to connect with you and help provide some career coaching. You can find out more about the career coaching at faithworkrest.com. Until next time, we pray that God would help you discern your vocation, reimagine every aspect of your occupation, and give you rich, life-giving rhythms of rest. We pray that your work would glorify God and seek the good of your neighbor. See you next week.